Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. To find out if it's right for you. I'm Donald McIntyre and this is Murderers and Their Mothers, the companion podcast to the CBS reality series, which airs every Sunday at 10pm. Now, throughout this series, we're investigating some of the world's most notorious killers and asking, were these murderers born evil or did their relationships with their own mothers make them into monsters? On today's episode, we look at the case of Leszek Pinkowski, one of Poland's most infamous murderers. He was convicted of rape and murder in 1996 and is still behind bars today. But that's not the whole story. On his arrest, he confessed to 80 acts of rape and murder over a 12-year period. But suddenly he then retracted his confession. As the evidence against him wasn't conclusive, he never faced trial for these crimes. Did he commit the 80 other acts of rape and murder? And if not, why did he confess to them? We know he killed on at least one occasion. What drove him to murder a 17-year-old girl and then have sex with her dead body? Joining me to discuss the fascinating and equally confusing case of Leszek Pankowski are Dr Elizabeth Yardley, the Director of the Centre for Applied Criminology at Birmingham City University. Welcome, Liz. Hi. And also joining me is the award-winning journalist from Poland, Justina Kopinska. Welcome, Justina. Hi, thank you. Born in 1966, Leszek Pankalski grew up in poverty in Osheki near the Baltic Sea. He had an estranged relationship with his father, who never recognised him as his own son. His mother was a poor farmhand who couldn't hold down a relationship and who also had a drink problem. It's believed her drinking may have had a significant effect on the unborn Leszek. Liz, Leszek did not have a good start in life. No, he didn't. Um, and even before he came into the world, um, he was beset with issues because his, his mother was a very heavy drinker. And we know that there's, there's a condition called fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is basically a range of developmental disabilities that children can experience if, if their mothers are, have drunk heavily during pregnancy. So, so it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he came into the world already disadvantaged. Did Pankalski, Justina, show signs of having been affected by his mother's drinking? 
Yes, he was very naughty boy. He was loud. He didn't have a good marks at school. He could, couldn't focus. He wanted to be alone. He he spent time alone. Let's just paint a picture here. His mother was a farmhand, and I'm beginning to, you know, see a picture the same kind of picture I saw with Fred West's family. That kind of agricultural kind of acceptance of death and some kind of you know feral existence that was mirroring this over here in a small country town in Poland, Liz. It's this same story of of quite a harsh life in an impoverished community uh, and obviously without the support of of the father in the picture, you know, the mother has to go out to work but obviously she's not able to to earn the amount of money that she needs to to get by. So so not only have we got, you know, the instability that's caused by a mum with an alcohol problem, you've got poverty, you've got neglect, you've got an awful lot of, of stuff thrown in there. I mean, she's a farmhand and she's coming in and she's smelling, she's dirty, she's having sex with a whole range of alternative men in front of the young Pinkalski. He was hugely neglected here. He was, and and the home life is very chaotic, it's very unstable. There isn't that kind of routine and the kind of predictability that, that a lot of children need, you know, in those early years, that all children need in those early years. Now, if we look at... His his mother here, she was a drunk and a violent drunk betimes. And we've looked at cases of killers where their mothers were, in fact, alcoholic, but they were kind in the times when they were sober. But that wasn't the case here. No, it's just continuous cruelty all of the time, isn't it? And there's, there's not that kind of maternal bond or, or the ability to put the child's needs before her own. She wasn't ready for those kids. She didn't want to have Leszek and his sister Joanna. So she didn't take care of them. They were all alone. They were dirty. They didn't get enough food. So Leszek was very often hungry. Let's paint a social picture of the times he came into this world. This was a Catholic country in a communist era. And here was a child born out of wedlock, terrible poverty, an alcoholic. I mean, there was no self-esteem anywhere near. That family must have been practically ostracized. They must have brought shame to part of that community. Yeah, there was there was stigma from from every angle. They, they weren't doing anything that was, was expected of a normal family. Other children were laughing at Leszek that he's a bastard. So probably they've heard it uh, in their own houses. And yeah, I think that this was like a very Catholic region. It has a huge impact on the small boy as well. So he's watching. He's got. He's being treated badly by his peers. He's being physically abused by his mother. He's got low self-esteem, incredibly poor. So once again, we see this familiar pattern of isolation in the young Leszek Pankalski. I think it was very important that he, it has the huge effect on him, that he saw his mother during during sex with so many male partners. And he started, the, the Leszek started to talk about sex very often. So it was also abnormal during as for, for the child. So not only have you got violence and abuse and neglect, but you've also got absolutely no boundaries around sexual behaviour. So what we would consider appropriate and inappropriate just isn't there for him. Leszek's grandmother is also drafted in to help with the childcare as his mother often has to work long hours. But his grandmother shows him very little affection and she too also has an alcohol problem. He and his twin sister are often neglected and left dirty and hungry. Now, as a reminder, 
he's a twin. He's a fraternal twin. And within that couple, he's the neglected one. So insofar as they're both neglected, he gets really the you know, wrong end of the stick. Yeah, he, he's targeted, isn't he, for, for the abuse and the violence and the neglect. And, and we've got to wonder why that is. I mean, was he physically different in appearance to, to his sister? You could see from from his behaviour that he probably is like a mentally ill. So it m- might be also a problem to his mother and grandmother. But I, I think that in this family, women, probably they, they hated men some, somehow because they also, uh, they were really cruel to, to grandfather. So they were strong, grandmother, mother of Leszek, they, they were strong women. And probably he, uh, during that period, he became afraid of women. You know, are we beginning to see again, as we've seen in other serial killers, the beginning of the seeds of resentment against the female form? Yes, because we can see that Leszek is afraid of women and also he, at this age, he already wanted to have some control. He started to throw stones into people and he wanted to, he desperately wanted some attention from his mother and grand, grandmother and he didn't get it. So he, he felt like that this is unfair that he needs to take some kind of revenge. But as a child, he didn't, or he didn't have a plan. He didn't know what to do. Everything will change in the future. And the grandmother isn't counterbalancing all of the violence and, and the abuse and the neglect from the mother. If anything, she's amplifying it. So you don't have you know, a positive female role model anywhere in this family. We've seen this with our other Polish serial killer, Kinahawa, where you had this double team of abuse, this multiplication between the abuse from the grandmother and the mother. What's going on here? I mean, how unusual is it that you see both generations exercise the same abuse? It's surprising to us because, you know, we come from from loving, caring families. But when you've had multi-generational abuse and and violence and neglect, it's what children come to to know as as normal. Uh, And often, you know, it is emulated from from one manifestation of the family to, to the other. Well, not surprising, the poor and often dirty and underfed Leszek struggles at school and he's often seen as slow and he finds it extremely hard to make friends. He's ostracised and is teased for being greasy and smelly. To what degree does his mother try and help him fit in at school? She didn't do anything to, to help him at school. And he couldn't handle that. He could see that he's different from other children, that he doesn't have such a good marks. And I think this was like a point when his mother and grandmother started to think how to place Leszek in some kind of orphanage place. So he's a bit of a loner. He has a, That means, to my mind, not only is he suffering isolation, but also he begins to have the time leisure time to fantasize and this is where things must start to percolate in his world Mm -hmm. as they do for all sorts of for for all kinds of kids yeah because i think when you've got children who've come from abusive backgrounds often if they're able to form positive relationships with their peers that gives them a little bit of comfort a bit of support but but there's absolutely none of that here at eight he started to kill or hurt animals and this is also like so typical for murderers or future serial killers he enjoys that kind of power, that kind of control. Well, forensic psychologist Kerry Danes takes up that very point, Justina. 
it's extremely unusual and very, very worrying that Penkowski would seem to take pleasure in watching animals being killed. That is very, very concerning and it's very psychopathic. So I think that this was a very clear cue that there was something wrong with this boy. It's such a red flag, isn't it, Liz? We, we know this. I mean, every viewer of CSI, they know this. The torturing of animals is a red flag. It does seem to be, doesn't it? And you've got to look at what children are doing here. So essentially they're trying to get some power and some control back over their lives and and they're not physically big enough to be violent towards other children or, or other people. So, so the only creatures that they can be hurtful and abusive towards who aren't going to you know, risk some kind of retribution or, or attacking them back are animals. We, we know later on he complains he was sexually abused by older boys in another school later on in his early teens. But I get the hint, and I think a lot of social workers and psychologists, child psychologists, would suggest that this is an indication of child sexual abuse in and around the family. It's, it's often a red flag to social services about that particular issue, Liz. And I can't imagine that, although he's witnessed his strange sexual antics of his mother, it seems to me if those boundaries were broken, it's not a big jump to see him being a victim of child sexual abuse. Well, no, because his, his boundaries and, and his ideas about what's right and wrong in terms of sexual behaviour just aren't there. And, and I think, you know, at, at one point in time, he, he starts to equate, you know, sexual violence with, with power rather than just violence on its own. So it's all coming into a really toxic mixer. And we know before he declares that he's been sexually abused later on in his teens by other teenage boys, he is talking about sex. About sex, about getting wife. He's like obsessed with this idea of uh, women, of wife, and, and he talks about sex all the time. Actually, he doesn't know how to build the relationship. He, he didn't see any good relationship in his life. Justina, at this stage, you know, with such a flawed domestic existence, he's obsessed, even at an early age, about finding a wife. He's looking for an answer to his very tragic circumstances, isn't he? I think he wanted uh, some attention. He wanted to be close to, to someone. He didn't get it from grandmother. He didn't want to get it from the, from mother. And he just wanted to, to be close with woman. And I think it had a huge effect on him that he saw his mother during sex with so many partners. Because on one hand, he wanted to protect her. He thought probably that they, they, they are hurting her. On the, the other, he, similar to Knechawa, he probably started to see her as a sinner. I mean, this is quite interesting. As a young child, if you're watching your mom have drunken sex with random strangers, you probably think your mother is under difficulty. You, you don't understand what's going on. This is your only reality. This is the, the only thing that you know. So, so you're using all of this deviant behaviour that goes on under your roof as your yardstick for normality. So at this stage, there is an intervention. He is, we understand, brought and placed in the care of nuns about, I think, 200 miles away 
and he finds that uh, quite a place of comfort. Because the nuns are completely different than his grandmother and his mother, and they really take care of him. They they give him some kind of love or warm. And I think because of that, he uh, really wants to be a Catholic, to be a proper, to be a good Catholic person. And he started to believe in God, and he started to be very close to God. It must have been very confusing to him to see a woman and these women cherishing him and giving him comfort and warmth when all the other female figures in his world were cruel and callous. It's a real counterbalance to that violence and abuse that, that has come before it, but, but is it too late at this point? Before, he was very often hungry and nuns really taking care of uh, food for him. So he uh, suddenly he became very strong and healthy and he exercises. He, uh, he started to take care about his body. So we've got a sense of here is a young boy who is beginning to experience for the very first time, you know, some rising self-esteem. And I think you've got to look at the, the the environment that he's in. So he's got some structure. He's got some routine. He knows what's going to happen from one day to the next. So, so this is wholly different from what's come before. Now, this is one of these moments, crossroads, where I feel that if he had stayed in this convent, you know, he could have been you know, rescued or the damage that had been done to him earlier might have been redressed. Yeah, potentially. I think so. It's possible. I think that his mother and grandmother and the and the feelings that he had towards them, it has like the biggest effect on him. This was only ever going to be a temporary fix. So ultimately he ends up in a state school, a special state school, where he stays to the age of 14. Now this has a kind of state school slash care home for other disadvantaged or damaged boys. And of course, the problem is when you've put lots of damaged people together without proper controls, unsavoury things happen. Yeah, they, they can do. I mean, you, you've got a, a group of, of young lads here who, who've all come from difficult circumstances. Some of them have been physically abused, others will have been sexually abused, some of them will experience both. And so they, they will all have learned that, that with, with violence comes power and control. So, so it's not surprising what happens next. So this is a really critical time. This is where he begins to learn the lessons, interesting lessons, devastatingly tragic lessons about power, control and sex. I think he saw that he's on his own, that even this, this God couldn't help him or uh, obviously his mother or grandmother, the children, they, they beat him up. He was sexually abused at this school. He, he was all alone. There's a suggestion, Justina, that while at this special school, he abused or is supposed to have abused a learning disabled or disabled girl. What do we know about that? There were uh, teachers who said that it's true, but there are like some rumors that he raped this uh, disabled woman or abused this disabled women. But we cannot be sure about that. What we are sure that that he was uh, looking for a wife even in the orphanages or in these places for the disabled people. He was like asking directors of those places to uh, give him wife, and it was like. He he desperately needed uh, some kind of relationship, but he didn't know how to create it, how to build it. He leaves this special state school and at this stage he's learning to be a bricklayer and he's in Supsk and it's a town and he's comfortable there. And uh, at this stage, 
for the two years between 16 and 18, what kind of individual are we talking about? We're talking about somebody who is potentially very dangerous. I mean, he's ticking by on a day-to-day basis and, and, and not doing you know, anything too out of the ordinary. But there's, there's a particular event that happens when he goes and, and he sees his mother and there's obviously some kind of confrontation between them. Um, she's been drinking again, and and it's it's quite antagonistic. It's it's not pleasant. And this uh, allegedly is the time at which he commits his his first murder. So so he leaves his his mother's house, and and he sees an opportunity. He sees a girl walking, and he he follows her, and he attacks her and kills her. And here we are. He's in Supsk. He's committed according to him later in life, his very first murder, age 17. And this is a hint of projection of the hatred and resentment he felt towards his mother. Is he he killing? When he's killing, Justina, is he thinking of his mother? Probably, because this first crime, it was just after the argument with his mother when he saw her again and he saw that she was still drinking, that uh, that she was the same person that he hated 10 years ago. And Justina, presumably he's desperately still trying to forge a bond. Every time he goes back and sees his mother, he hopes he's craving some love and affection from her, but he never gets it. He never get it because she, uh, in 1987, his mother dies uh, of a heart attack. So he he suddenly he uh, suddenly he became all alone. He doesn't have anything around any anybody around him, and he just desperately wanted a wife. He he's like obsessed with this with his idea of family. Liz, do you think his obsession with a wife is a kind of a sideways kind of? desperation kind of need for female motherly maternal love. Well, I think what it is, it's an attempt to wrestle back some control over his life. So he's had very little control over his childhood because it's been abusive and violent and chaotic and he, he's gone from one place to the next. So so there's never been that, that kind of stability. And a lot of children will try and wrestle that control back through through internalising it, through harming themselves. So problems with alcohol, eating disorders, that kind of thing. But what's happening with him is that he's externalising it. So he started off harming animals. Yeah, he's now now, you know, fatally harming people. Uh, and this isn't something that, that stops. And now we know in the workplace, he's beginning to, as well as obsess about women, he's also having some gay relationships. He is obsessed with women. He's obsessed with uh, sex. He really wants to get a wife. He started even to write some letters to, to women. But actually, on the other hand, he started some sexual relationship with men from his job. So it's like such a complex person personality. Yeah, it's difficult to understand this young boy. It's important to remember that this is someone who doesn't have a lot in the way of, of, of filter or control when it comes to their sexual urges. So so when he sees somebody, you know, be that male or female, you know, if, if he feels sexually attracted to them, he's literally just going to reach out and grab them. I think he, he also wanted to be close to someone, not even in a sexual way, but he didn't mind. He desperately wanted to have some attention. You get a sense this is now a young adult who had no boundaries in childhood and now has few boundaries in adulthood. But he knows he has to fit in and he does get into trouble, doesn't he, on the building site when he makes a pass, an unwanted pass at another colleague. 
Yes, he does. Um, so he, he's working on the building site and, and he, he gropes one of his, his male colleagues and, uh, and this colleague, you know, does not appreciate this and, and, and makes a big fuss about it. So, so I think this is his, his kind of warning signal at this point in time that if I'm really kind of blatant about these things, I'm going to get caught and I'm going to get disciplined for it. And it's quite interesting here, it's a kind of slightly technical issue, just to let the listeners know, is that he is kind of signed off sick by the welfare system in Poland because they believe he's slightly incapable of consistent employment and he was groping up other workers. So that means he gets you know, a regular wage and this proves to be quite significant, quite a significant point, Justina, in his admissions about all these murders later on. He started to travel a lot with the, using the trains, using t- trams, and he he has this possibility of killing people without any without any notice. And he still plays the role of the victim. He pretends that he's weak, but actually he's such a strong person who can hit really fast and then escape. So actually, we still don't know how many people he killed. And at this point of his life. Leszek is uh, homeless, he's all alone, and uh, he started to live with his uncle, who is another person, one more person in his life who is cruel. And uh, so he, he has any role model in his life. But well, the now homeless and orphaned Leszek Pankalski is alone and completely rudderless. He moves in with his uncle and spends many days travelling Poland by train. In a bizarre move, he also renounces his Catholicism, which he previously held very dear to him, and he becomes a Jehovah's Witness. Why become a Jehovah's Witness? Well, I think we've got to look at what, what it is that religion represents for him. So it represents structure, it represents routine, it represents you know people who care about him. So he knows that, that if he attaches himself to a particular group, he's going to get a roof over his head. He's going to get fed and watered. So it's going to fulfil those basic needs for him. Now, Justina, we know that he loved travelling, he loved geography as a kid. But by travelling across Poland, apparently... Was that because of his love of geography, cartography, or was it because he wanted to kill? We have no idea, actually, because he, after he was catched, he he was saying that he killed like almost eighty people, but he could uh, lie. He could. We we are not sure about that. But we do know that Leszek then rapes a forty-year-old woman, and he is arrested, but is released with a suspended sentence. So what triggers him to rape this woman at this time? Well, I think it's it's the familiar story that we see with him, isn't it? It's that inability to be able to suppress those those urges that he has. And, and if he, he sees something he wants, he, he just takes it. And he has no empathy at all. He, he doesn't think about this woman. He just wants to fulfil his cruel dreams. And he can't get a wife, he can't get a partner, his social skills are quite weak. So he rapes this 40-year-old woman. And this is a point where the suspended sentence for me is quite problematic. We have a moment here, crossroads, just like we had when he was with the nunnery, where if he'd stayed there, that could have redressed some of his previous pain and suffering as a child. But had he been given a prison sentence, might he have not become the murderer he became, Justina? 
I think he, he like we could see that he could become this person, the, the very cruel person since his childhood, since he was cruel to animals, since he was sexually abused and felt alone and had already these fantasies about hurting other people. So I'm not sure, I, I'm sure that in Knechawa's case, the prison had like huge impact on uh, Joachim Knechawa. With Pankarski, I think everything started in his childhood. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you think had he had had a prison sentence at this point, it would have got him off the streets. He wouldn't have been a danger to the public. But but would he have learned some more social skills in prison that would enable him to be a more prolific offender when he came out? So so it could have gone either way, couldn't it, really? Well, it's quite interesting. In the world of fantasy or fiction or fact that we'll discover later, he kind of becomes a media sensation because of his admissions. We know at least he did rape this woman. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Well, sadly, we know that Leszek's real crimes would continue. And in 1991, he killed a 17-year-old girl he'd lured to a forest by claiming to be poor and hungry. And he said he needed some help. He smashed in her skull with a spade and then returned several times to have sex with her corpse. It's a horrendous crime. We know he was guilty of that crime. 
And uh, why do you think he killed her? He felt rejected. Like, he asked Sylvia to uh, marry him. He he was pretending a victim once again. He was pretending that he's all poor, hungry and uh, alone. He asked her for food. And when she bring him some bread, he asked her to marry him. When she refuses, he just killed her. I think she, he didn't know how to re- react. We need to remember that he didn't know how to build relationships. He didn't know how to act, how to be close with women. And he needed the blood. He was also a cruel person. So this is like a mixture that caused this uh, crime. And I think he learned from his experience of, of the rape of the 40-year-old woman. He didn't want to leave a witness behind. So I think that's that's part of the reason that, that he killed her. And why do you think, Justina, he's obsessed with these bodies? Because he wanted a control and he didn't want any reaction from the human being. And it's also these these kind of unmitigated desires that he's got. You know, if he wants to have sex, he wants to have sex, whether it's a man or a woman, whether they're alive or they're dead. It's a need that he wants to fulfil. It's actually quite primal. In terms of the fact that he is having sex with a dead body, we know he's raped. Extraordinary violence here, Liz, right? What do we make now of the possibility that he could have gone on to become a serial killer? Yeah, I mean, all of the ingredients are there because he's he's honing some social skills at this point. He's learning from his mistakes. He's he's not leaving witnesses behind him. So, so yeah, I mean, he, he could well have gone on to, to kill more and more women. And then we see, of course, the next twist in this case. Following his arrest, he admits to 80 other cases of rape and murder. And there are two key questions here. Did he commit some or all of these crimes? And if not, why did he confess? Justina, do you think, was it possible he committed all of these crimes? No, I think it's not possible. I think he was like a huge gift for a police in Poland because they have all of these undetected crimes. And then suddenly they see a man who admit to to do that so they can close all the cases. Uh, So they were probably extremely happy. And that was the reason that they became completely uncareful with that and they didn't check that properly. And this is the reason why he was convicted only for one murder. But Leszek Pękarski, I think he wanted just he wanted to be famous. That's that's the reason that he he mentioned all 80 of those crimes of those murders. And he also he really enjoyed media attention. For the first time he was seen, for the first time he was noticed. So is it possible if he didn't commit all of these crimes, Liz, is it possibly committed some of them? It's possible that, that he could have committed some of the ones that were, were on that list. And I think what we've got to remember is that the function of a confession, it gets you attention, it gets you sustained attention. And, and I think the, the idea of celebrity, of being somebody who matters, is, is quite an appealing one to him at this point in time. In terms of the, his confession, I get it that the cops were delighted. It, it served their purposes. It served his purposes. But this is so extraordinary. Why did he withdraw his confession? He was afraid. He was afraid of the death penalty. He, he just didn't want to be hanged. So he withdraws his confession and the police are left with a barren evidence locker on the other cases. There's some evidence that he couldn't possibly have committed some of these murders. But, you know, finally... Can any of us think that he may have murdered 10, 12? Because I think it's highly unlikely that this dangerous predator travelled all around Poland with that skill set and didn't kill more. 
Well, this is the thing, and and we have to always be wary of kind of official statistics when it comes to homicide. So so there are lots of people who are killed by others unlawfully, and we never get to hear about it because they're they're homeless, they're runaways, they're people who are off the radar of society. So so there may well be be victims out there that haven't even been found yet. Well, in respect of his specific crimes he was convicted of, you know, murder and separately rape, to what extent was he mentally ill? To what extent was he a victim? I think he was just this this kind of uh, neglected uh, kid who grew up and he felt so alone. He felt that he desperately needed some attention. Plus, he became cruel. I don't think he 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 was a psychopath. He definitely has some sort of dis- disorders. There's definitely some kind of antisocial personality at work here. And I don't think he's mentally ill. And I think we've got to be a bit careful about what we mean by mentally ill. So when we look at people who are mentally ill, they are not aware that what they're doing is wrong or they're not aware of what they're doing. But he very much knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that it was wrong and he continued to do it anyway. So he wasn't kind of under the influence of some sort of psychosis you know that he felt compelled to act in a particular way he was choosing to be violent towards the people that he harmed and the seeds of that may have been sown in the brain damage he might have suffered from his mother's abuse of alcohol when he was in the womb Potentially. I mean, when you look at the, the impact of, of drinking during pregnancy, there's a, there's a whole spectrum of, of different things that can happen. But but there is the argument that it, it impacts on people's behaviour, on their ability to suppress or control various urges. But by this point in his life, he knows the difference between right and wrong, yet he's still choosing to act in this way. Now let's go back to murderers and their mothers. For the purposes of this entire documentary strand and podcasts, we have come up with a typology and we'll be working into a paper sometime over the next few months. We have indeed, and um, we, we see the, the mothers of, of murderers as, as existing on, on a spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, we've got the anti-mother, so the mother who is abusive and, and actively neglectful and violent towards her child. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the uber-mother, who is over-parenting um, her son in an attempt to kind of make up for, for some of the, the shortfalls that have held her back in her life. So they are kind of super-mothers. Uh, then in the middle, you've got passive-mothers. So these are the women who just sit back while whilst other people abuse their, their children or, or they sit back and they ignore the real warning signs that, that something is not right. And we've got this double multiplier of effect here of the anti-mother, uh, the absolute opposite of the maternal instincts which we would all know and we're familiar with here. So you'd place his mother, the mother of this potential serial killer and his grandmother in the role of... Yeah, I'd say definitely the anti-mother. And, and, and we've got the anti-mother twice over, haven't we? Because it, it's not just the mum, it, it's the grandma as well. What chance did he have for a normal life? Well, he had an absolutely shocking start in life, didn't he? And and many children have these, these horrible kind of early years experiences. Not all of them are going to go on and harm other people. But I think she's definitely sown the seeds here for, for somebody who has the potential to harm other people. Did she make him the murderer he became? I think she was one of the factors. Everything could change when he was with in the orphanage place. He got that warm and love there, but somehow he he didn't it didn't stop him. So I think it was also some, something inside of Leszek Pankarski that he wanted to become a murderer. And here's the extraordinary thing: despite that confession to eighty murders, which he withdrew. He is now due for release sometime in 2017, 2018. 
Whether that happens or not, well, that's a matter for the Polish authorities. Leszek Pankowski was convicted of one rape and murder and sentenced to 25 years in prison. And for the moment, he remains in jail. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Liz Yardley and Justina Kopinska. And of course, you can watch the full documentary of murderers and their mothers, Leszek Pankowski on CBS Reality. Next time, we'll be looking at the case of the Sandy Hook shooter, Adam Lanza. From me, Donald McIntyre, it's goodbye and thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.